his joy was infectious. I had only known him for a brief while, but he knew Jesus. He loved to study the word of Christ. He loved talking about Jesus with other people. He would read obscure medieval texts uh, by mystics and, and, and talk about how excited he was reading it. And I was kind of filtering out some of the bad theology in some of these medieval mystics, but he was just simply marveling in the love of Christ that, that they displayed uh, that was there in their hearts. And, and I could see the impact that his love for Jesus, his relationship with Jesus had on other people. Um, I could see how he would stay up until one or two in the morning talking with friends about God. Um, you know, I would, you know, it's not that his head was in the clouds. He had a job. He had a career. He, he, he got stuff done. But, but above all, what he wanted was to know Jesus as Savior. And his life was an open book. He, he just wanted to sit at Jesus' feet as a student of our Lord. We're going to read a passage which for some of you will be very familiar. Uh, it's uh, from Luke chapter 10 in which we think about what it means to sit at the feet of Jesus. This is the gospel according to Luke chapter 10 beginning in verse 38. Jesus and his disciples were on their way and he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. What do we see here? First, we see a remarkably inclusive vision of the kingdom that Jesus gives us. Um, realize what it meant to sit at a teacher's feet in the first century. We read that Matthew sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Uh, you know, that this, this was a, a formal kind of education. The Jewish Mishnah in Abot 1.4 said, let your house be a meeting house for the sages and sit amidst the dust of their feet and drink in their words with thirst. To be a follower, to be formally trained, to receive a theological education meant to sit at the feet of a sage or a wise person or a rabbi, to sit at their feet and drink in their words to fill you. This was how training happened in the first century. It's how education happened, how disciples were spiritually formed and how leaders were developed. And, and so I want you to realize how scandalous this would have been for the first readers within their uh, mindset because you know the the, the, the Jewish uh, 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 writings had said it is better to teach a dog than a woman by allowing Mary to sit at his feet and receive instruction Jesus is providing a formal theological education for women that was denied them within Judaism uh, remember that 
Jesus' ministry had been funded by three wealthy Jewish women that Luke had talked about earlier in chapter 8. Mary called Magdalene, uh, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, manager of Herod's household, and Susanna, as well as others. They supported Jesus, we read, uh, out of their own means. They were independently prosperous. Uh, remember the prominent place that we saw Elizabeth had in the birth narrative of John the Baptist. She overshadowed her husband within the narrative. Remember how Mary and not Joseph was presented to us as the model disciple that, that, that accepted the word of God even though it seemed impossible. When the angel spoke, she accepted without wavering. Uh, and she was blessed by both Elizabeth and by Simeon. Uh, remember how Jesus had been anointed by a woman in Simon the Pharisee's house, a woman who was one of the few people in the Gospels to whom Jesus gives unqualified praise in front of other people. Uh, this is one in a, a series of acts in which Jesus shows how remarkably inclusive the kingdom is, fully inclusive of women, and yet we also see it's fully inclusive uh, of, of, of others as well. You know, we, we read how the example of love was not from a, a Jewish teacher or a Jewish priest, but from a Samaritan, a foreigner, a heretic with bad theology who showed us what love was. Jesus elevating those on the out and bringing them inside. We saw how Jesus delivered a despised Gentile demoniac from a legion of demons, cleansed his soul and body, ate with him, taught him, and then sent him out as a missionary to tell others what Jesus had done. Again, it's incredibly inclusive. Jesus took all of society's outcasts, the marginalized, and he brought them from the outside to the inside of his kingdom. He trained them. He equipped them. He sent them out. He brought in people with leprosy. He brought in people who were poor, people with sicknesses, people who were who were shamed and shunned by their community, people who would come to him for mercy and follow him. He gives all of them, anybody who is willing, a seat at his feet that they might learn and, and be trained and be sent out as those who know Jesus. We see this remarkably inclusive Jesus who trains even Mary. And yet we also see the absolute priority of sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha is not the point of this account. Uh, you know, often when we talk about this, we talk about how busy Martha is, and that's kind of the whole thing, don't be busy. Uh, you know, but, but that's not the point. Martha is the foil to Mary's model. A foil is a backdrop that makes something stick out. Like if, you know, you put something brown behind, in front of brown woodwork, and you're not going to notice it. But if you put something white in front of it, then, you know, the, the brown is the foil. It's what makes the white pop out. And, and that's how Martha is functioning within, within this story. Um, while not mentioned here, of course, Mary and Martha had a brother named Lazarus who would later die and be raised from the dead in one of Jesus' miracles. He was, appears to have been the male of the family. Martha was likely the owner of the house since she is alone mentioned as that and she is mentioned first. She is the one who offers the hospitality. She is the older sister. No husband is mentioned, which means that she was the host. Within her cultural context, she would have felt the pressure to prepare an elaborate, fine meal for a guest of Jesus' stature. Martha's name in Greek is actually the feminine version of Lord, as in Lord and Lady, Lord and Martha. Her name means mistress or Lord. She's the boss. 
and you can sense her hurt in her words when she's working alone preparing this elaborate feast and she feels taken for granted we can imagine she you, you, in her words it's obvious she's feeling abandoned she's saying lord don't you care that my sister has left me to work by myself tell her to help me and and her question sounds accusatory though though in the greek she's assuming the, the greek structure assumes that she's going to get a yes answer of course i care go go in there and help your sister she's asking though do you care uh, surely you care don't you she's asking she's calling into question the love of jesus she's asking assuming that he does but still questioning it and jesus does care and he cares far more than she can realize because jesus is affirming the priority of sitting at his feet mary sat and listen to what he said. He said, only one thing is needed. Martha, you have to realize Mary has chosen what is better. Literally the choicest parcel. Uh, she's in the kitchen fixing this meat, you know, lamb or whatever it is. And the bread's baking. And all this stuff's going on wherever she's probably outside cooking. But, uh, you know, and, and, and yet Jesus is saying, well, you're in the kitchen preparing the choicest parcels. I'll tell you, the real choicest par parcel was in your living room. And, and that's me, Jesus. And Mary has chosen the better portion, the better meal, the better food. Jesus would have been happy sharing a loaf of bread and a bowl of olives. He didn't ask her to prepare an elaborate feast. We can speculate that Mary assumed that it was perhaps, or, or Martha might have assumed that it was too high of a calling for her to go sit at Jesus' feet as a woman. Uh, that, that her place was, was in the kitchen, so to speak, preparing the meal. But, but Jesus is pointing out the opportunity that Mary has chosen what is better. Only one thing is needed, and it will not be taken from her. One thing. Jesus is the man in whom the fullness of God dwells. He is the one through whom all things were made. He is the king from which his kingdom derives its existence. He is the author of life, and he is our friend. Only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the better portion to receive his love and his life and his wisdom, to know him, to sit at his feet and to learn from him. He's the better meal and it will not be taken from her. What does it look like to prioritize sitting at Jesus' feet? I mean, we all face distractions of many kinds that get us very worried and can distract us from the most important thing. Perhaps you know that feeling of being pressed with too many things on your plate already and realizing that you can't do it all and, and you're getting anxious and stressed like, 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 like Martha was. Perhaps you felt the resentment of being the only one getting anything done, feeling abandoned, having to do everything yourself, being taken for granted. You're distracted by all the preparations that have to be made. Uh, what does it look like? to take all those other things which Jesus calls distractions and put them in their place in the place they belong subservient to Jesus he's making it your priority to know Jesus to meditate on his words to enroll as a pupil of his school to learn to 
understand and live out what he teaches us in his word. This is not a legalistic thing like the Pharisees. Jesus rebuked them saying that they diligently study the scriptures because they think that by them they possess eternal life. But Jesus says, these are the words that testify about me. Jesus is saying, I want you to look at my word in order to see me. I am here for you in your grace. I see you and I love you. Feast upon me. This is getting God's word inside of you, getting the gospel deep in your heart. It can be accomplished through so many means, but all of them require a time and investment. Investment in your soul. Investment in your soul that was made for God and who now has God in Jesus Christ. Uh, what are the ways to get it inside of you? Well, you could, could read it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I remember uh, a friend of mine, we often go on vacation together, and, and, and I'll you know, be you know, finishing up my breakfast, and I'll look outside and see him outside uh, in the sun with his cup of coffee and his Bible, and he just sits there for like an hour, and it's just such a joy and delight to see him Seated, seated at, at Jesus' feet, learning from him. You can sing God's word. You can memorize God's word. I remember as a college student, those na- did any of you do the Navigator Bible memory verse cards? Anybody old enough to remember those? They were actually fantastic. Um, I did get kind of legalistic about them, but, um, but they were helpful. It got God's word inside of me. Um, you know, you could join a Bible study. You could go on a silent retreat. You could learn how to meditate on, on the Psalms. You could read a good commentary. You could read an entire biblical book in one sitting. You could ask a pastor for book recommendations. You know, there are all sorts of ways to sit at Jesus' feet, but all of them require carving out space in order to fall in love again with Jesus, your best friend. It's what Mary chose. Simplify whatever else you have to simplify. Cut out what's non-essential. Uh, you know, if you learn Jesus is coming over for dinner, I dare you, order pizza. Because you want to spend your time with Jesus and not in a kitchen. You know, Jesus doesn't ask you to cook a meal for him. He asks you to sit at his feet, to capitalize on the opportunity to listen to him. Uh, but, but, of course, this means you're going to have to set something aside if you prioritize this. There's no way to prioritize being a student of Jesus without having to cut something. And that means somebody's going to be unhappy. Something's not going to be as, as, as the, way it, the way you have it all planned out. So how is it possible to make that kind of commitment? Uh, it's possible when you understand that Jesus worked so that we don't have to. We don't have to be on a performance treadmill like, like, like Martha. Uh, you know, listen to her. She was distracted by all the preparations that had to, that had to be made. She <laughs> they didn't have to be made. She came to him. Lord, don't you care? My sister's left me alone all by myself. Tell her to help me. She, Jesus says, you're worried. You're upset about many things because obviously this is not just about getting the meal done. She was worried. She was upset because she thought she had to make a meal for Jesus. There was some, something uh, fitting the occasion for him. She's questioning, but listen to her. She's questioning the goodness of Jesus. She's getting frustrated with those who aren't working as hard as she is. And those are precisely the signs that you will find in your own heart when you're functionally having a performance-based relationship with God is you're going to be questioning God's goodness and you're going to be looking down on those who don't work as hard as you do. Uh, because psychologically, you're building an identity for yourself and they're not doing it. And, and so you, you have to look down upon them in order to feel good about yourself. 
You have to run faster, do better, try harder, get more done, get it right the first time. And it can leave you anxious in the middle of it all. And when, when you do succeed, you're going to become arrogant and judgmental and nobody's going to want to be around you. And when you fail, it will never forgive you because you will beat yourself up for the rest of your life because it will destroy you when you fail. And the shame can cripple us. Why do we do this to ourselves? Why get on this performance treadmill? And some of it goes back to creation. We were made to know God in knowledge and righteousness and holiness, and yet we fell. And so we're all broken and, and janky inside, and just there's stuff about us that's just wrong, and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't fix ourselves, but we can try. And that's what we do. We try. may not be in every area. We may be selective. But in some area of your life, you're going to try to find, to identify some area of your life where you can demand and expect greatness from yourself. Maybe it's your appearance. Maybe it's your popularity or your reputation. Maybe it's your music or your career. Maybe it's your par parenting. Maybe it's your job performance. It can be anything. It can be so many different things. And, and that sets the treadmill going. And you run on it. And you run on it. And you run on the treadmill because you think you need to measure up. Otherwise, you're going to become a zero. It's the lie of a treadmill. The treadmill says, I will make you free. But in fact, what it does is spiritually kill us. Above the entryway to the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz are the words, Arbe macht frei, work makes free. Work hard and you'll gain your freedom. It was cynical and evil thing to tell to people who were going there to their deaths to give them the false hope that if they work hard enough, if they go on the treadmill and they perform good enough for the Nazis, then they'll go free when they ended up in a gas chamber. The same thing stood over the, above the camp at Dachau. Work makes free. It was evil. It's the lie of the treadmill. Working hard will bring you liberation when what it really brought was humiliation, suffering, and death. And yet we still believe the lie. Work makes free. It's the false hope that we can gain our freedom through what we do, that we can contribute to our release. Uh, that we can offer something to validate our existence. It's the hope of every false religion. Our bait mocked fry. Work makes free. It's the hope of so many of our idols that, that if we just work hard enough in some area, we'll, we'll gain a freedom we didn't know we could have. And it's Jesus that actually makes us free. The righteous life and the sacrificial death of Christ that liberates us from the treadmill. Work makes free is the lie of the treadmill that we can accomplish enough to validate ourselves, whether it's in our family or in our lifestyle or our career or our ministry, our politics, our appearance, or look at the kind of house I can afford to live in. You know, to be one of the good people so that we can justify our existence through what we do. But Martha, if you'd set aside that lovely souffle you're making long enough to come sit next to Mary, Jesus has some important things that just might break you out of that pattern that is killing you. Because in the gospel, we see a Jesus who ran the treadmill and ran it to the full so that we can rest from it and walk away, so that we can sit at his feet. The passage here refers to Jesus and Mary as, as Jesus as Mary and Martha's Lord. A Lord can be Lord over the realm, in which case you as the Lord of the realm have an obligation to defend your subjects. 
Lord could also be used as the term of the head of a household, the head of a family who also had the responsibility to protect and rescue and, 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 and serve those under his headship as the head of the family. And as Jesus Lord, you know, he has obligations to Mary and Martha, an obligation uh, to, to, to those under his protection. That's what a Lord does for his subjects. He protects for his family, an obligation to pay off our debts, to ensure our freedom, and ultimately to save us from death and condemnation itself. It's what would ultimately drive, it's what was driving Jesus at this very moment toward Jerusalem, compelling him toward his crucifixion, driving him to his death as a ransom for our sin, payment for our sins, paying the infinite debt we could never pay ourselves. It's the great exchange that I talked about earlier, what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Where, where, where I have spent my entire life, almost 50 years, uh, breaking the greatest commandment continually. I mean, what's the greatest commandment? Love God with all of your heart, with 16 sixteenths of your soul, with 100.0% of your strength. And there's not a one of us in this room that's done that for five seconds, which means every single one of us in here has been breaking the greatest commandment our entire lives, nonstop, 24-7, um, even in your most meaningful, worshipful moments, you are committing the greatest sin against God, according to Jesus. And you do it all the time. And, and, and Jesus takes our sin, and he moves it to himself. And he goes to the cross, and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you think Jesus was really forsaken on the cross by God? You better believe it. And because of that, you will never be forsaken if you have Jesus. And then beyond that, that's forgiveness. Jesus loved God with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his soul, all of his strength. He said, I always do what pleases my Father. Righteousness, fulfilling the demands 24-7, running the treadmill with perfection. And all of that righteousness is credited to your account when you believe in Jesus, when you follow him as your Lord, such that you fed the 5,000. You raised Lazarus from the dead. You always did what pleased the Father. You have a resume that you'll never embellish and, and a resume that your sin will never taint. You have been freed from the treadmill. Jesus gives this to you as his, as his siblings. Uh, to illustrate, I, I realize there's a lot of talk recently in St. Louis about hitting 700 home runs. These days, I think we're at 698 last time I checked, but um, but a few have, have hit more in their career. Um, you had Hank Aaron's historic record, and then in 2007, you had Barry Bonds. But there was a lot of Barry, there was a cloud of doubt hanging over Barry Bonds as the home run king, because when he hit the number 756, uh, the home run that broke Aaron's historic record, um, there was a lot of talk about this new record because he had attained it through steroid use. And sports buffs said that if his name goes in the record book, it should be accomplished by an asterisk. What's an asterisk? It's that little star-like thing that tells you to look at the fine print below because this is not really what it seems to be. Uh, the, the asterisk uh, says it's a sort of record, a footnoted record. It means that the record is somehow tainted, and the asterisks didn't go away. Um, the man who actually had bought the ball that Bonds hit to set the new record 
he asked baseball fans in an online poll what he should do with the ball. And the fans voted for him to brand the baseball with an asterisk on the ball and to donate it to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And in 2008, he did just that. Scripture talks about Christians having our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. In, in which every believer, your name is, is written. And some of you assume that at the end of the age, you're going to look in that book and you're going to see your name in there with an asterisk next to it because of your sin. Because you're tainted. Because you don't really belong. But you're missing the gospel. So great is the salvation we have in Christ. So perfect his work on the cross. So great his justification, declaring us righteous, even when we're still sinners. You know, that the book of life, there will not be a single asterisk in the book. Not by your name, not by my name, not by anybody else's names. There are no asterisk Christians. There are only those who are in the Lamb's book of life, safe and secure, and nobody can take that away from them. Because that's what Jesus did for us. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like winning a Congressional Medal of Honor and immediately being ushered into the hallways of power. And in the Hebrew scriptures, in our Old Testament, we read of some really amazing, godly, wonderful people like, like Abraham. Um, but you have to realize that Abraham slept with his servant at his wife's suggestion, committing adultery. He passed his wife off as his sister twice, risking her life to protect his own. Uh, Abraham's name doesn't have an asterisk by it, nevertheless. You know, what does scripture say in Romans 4? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul writes, when a man works, his wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Do you hear that, friends? It's the heart of the gospel of Jesus to the one who does not work. His faith is credited as righteousness. It's better than forgiveness. Forgiveness says you can go. Righteousness says you can come. And Jesus is calling to you. Look at, look at Mary. She has chosen the better portion. She has chosen the better meal. Sit at my feet and invest in your own spiritual rest. I remember when I was working on my PhD, you know, I was the traditional Protestant in a Roman Catholic historical theology department at St. Louis University, and I entered that program with a degree of insecurity. I didn't know if they would look down upon me as a Protestant. Uh, I didn't know, uh, and, and they actually didn't, but I, I didn't know that, and I felt that drive within me to be exceptional as a student. Uh, and I remember one presentation where there was one faculty member who kind of had it out for me because he, he, he didn't like evangelical Protestants. Uh, and, and I remember I was gonna, had to give a presentation to a, a, a selection of the faculty as well as some other students, and he was in there on the panel and I can't remember what it was on, but I remember pouring my soul into this. I remember going to Union Station where there was a coffee shop that sold, 
sold uh, dark chocolate-covered espresso beans, and I got two bags of them, and I sat for about four days at my computer making this amazing presentation, eating chocolate-covered espresso beans night and day the entire time. And at that point, I had so much caffeine in me, I felt like a Greek god. I could, I could do anything. And I got up, and I gave this presentation, and, I, and it's like my mind was working at 150 miles per hour, and at the end of the presentation, this, this, this faculty member who didn't like me put his pencil down and he said in my 40 years in this department that is the best presentation I have ever heard then I went home and crashed and had three weeks of severe depression uh, but uh, came out of it but then comprehensive exams after my language work was done and my coursework was done I had these comprehensive exams in all these areas Western patristics Eastern patristics you know American you know modern European world religions whatever uh, and 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 I aced them and then I didn't sleep for six months I had four hours of sleep every night I woke up at 1 to 3 a.m. every night for the next six months as my body reacted to this treadmill that I was on trying to be good enough trying to be perfect and then came time in which I submitted my dissertation prospectus this is the proposal 80 page proposal of the dissertation I was going to write why it was needed who else has written on this why their stuff's no good why I'm why mine's going to be better why I'm going to create new knowledge which is what a doctor does in the humanities somebody who creates new knowledge new information that's not out there now um and uh, worked on it. It was on uh, 20th century American evangelicalism, uh, the rise of neo-evangelicalism in the 1940s. And uh, the faculty looked at it, and they said, nope. And it was a faculty that was trying to figure out who they were. Were they a Roman Catholic dogma department? Were they a church history department? Were they a cultural studies department looking at Catholic culture where they uh, 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 a world religions program they couldn't figure it out and they couldn't figure out how what I was writing about was relevant to anything and so I did another one uh, another 80 pages um, reworking some of the same stuff and another six or eight months to do that and submitted it and uh, they said no I did another and they rejected it and then I told Mike my advisor after some prayer that I would try one more time and if that was rejected I would withdraw from the program they would give me a master's degree instead of a PhD and I'd be done and I slipped into a severe depression I mean I wanted to be dead uh, I was not suicidal but I did not want to be alive and uh, that and, and, and through that process I realized that having that PhD after my name had come to mean something to me. It had come to mean entirely too much to me because it's just letters. It means nothing. Uh, and, and yet I grieved that. And, and it was a months before the faculty was going to meet. And, and as I came out of that, I began to sense a freedom. I'm not going to have to write this dissertation. I don't have to have letters after my name. I don't even want to write this dissertation. I could work at Wendy's. I could, I could, I could get it go back into architecture. I could just pastor my church. I could do anything. I don't have to do this. And I was liberated from this treadmill. And I was free, finally. And I, I regained my joy in Jesus. I regained my desire to, to read his word because I wasn't on this performance trying to make myself into somebody important. 
I could just be Greg, loved by Jesus, sinner and free. And then Mike called. He said, Greg, I have news for you. Congratulations. And then I knew I had to write the thing. And I was sad. <laughs> but there's a freedom and a joy that I regained when I was able to step off the treadmill that I didn't even realize was a treadmill. Friends, don't miss out. Jesus is talking to you. He's saying, come and sit at my feet. Be a student of me. Let me teach you a different kind of life, a life of freedom, a life of relationship, a life of love, a life of humility, a life where you don't have to be anybody important, a life where you can just be made in God's image, justified by God with hope of eternal life, with a short period on this earth in which you can love the people around you and tell people about Jesus. That's what it means to enter into your Sabbath rest even now, resting in the finished work of Christ on your behalf that can never be taken from you. Jesus is calling, friends. Let's pray.